Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 11, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. My guests on today's program are UCI neurobiology and anatomy professor Danielle Piomelli and state senator and UCI law school professor Joe Dunn to talk about California's disposition on the cutting edge of research and institution building in the aftermath of statewide approval of the two measures that legalized cannabis, Proposition 2015, that's the medicinal, Prop 64, that's recreational use. We'll devote the whole hour with these gentlemen as they bring some insight that may be surprising and possibly reassuring. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My two guests together for the entire hour are UCI neurobiology and anatomy professor, Dr. Danielle Piomelli, and state senator and UCI law school professor, Joe Dunn. They will talk about their clinical research and legal research that has led to their efforts to create multi-CAN, which will be led by Dr. Piomelli and Senator Dunn. First, Let's introduce these two gentlemen. Dr. Piomelli is a professor of anatomy and neurobiology, the Louise Turner Arnold Chair in Neurosciences with joint appointments in the School of Medicine's Chemistry and Pharmacology. Dr. Piomelli is also the director of the UCI Department of Pharmacology National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, and that will come up with National Institutes of Health references later, training, grant, and center for the drug discovery. Among his 20... 20 years of publications are his focus that it's exemplified in the title, quote, The Molecular Logic of Endocannabinoid Singling. His most recent substantial grants include Lipid Biosignatures of Drug Addiction, Optimization and Preclinical Development of FAAH Inhibitors for Smoke Sensation, and A Novel Treatment of Chronic Pain. He completed his pharmacy doctorate at the University of Naples in Italy and his PhD in pharmacology at Columbia University and has been studying and publishing about cannabinoids now for over 26 years. Among other national testimony he's offered is before the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee on Crime and Terrorism. Our other guest is Joe Dunn, formerly California State Senator representing Central Orange County. It was during his 1998-2006 tenure while serving as chair of the investigation committee. He received the moniker, The Man Who Cracked Enron. I remain grateful to him for hosting at his home a forum of a dozen or so judges who filed for election to several superior court positions. It was an interesting exercise that demonstrated how much one can learn about a judicial candidate just from their opening their mouths. He served as Chief Executive Officer of the California Medical Association as an Executive Director of the State Bar. He's founding partner of the Senator's firm, a law political consulting firm, 
And prior to the state Senate, Joe Dunn practiced law handling products liability litigation involving medical devices and pharmaceuticals as well as environmental cases. He's currently the Assistant Dean for External Relations and a lecturer at UCI's Law School. Joe Dunn earned his bachelor's at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota and his Juris Doctor, his law degree, at the University of Minnesota Law School. So on the heels, and I hope, I hope we get lots of privileged information here. We'll, we'll, I'll take those cues as we're joining in, together here in the studio. Uh, on the heels of Dr. Piamelli's recent meetings with national leaders and in institutional research, we'll be covering those very things, that the impact of medicinal recreational cannabis on human health, legal landscape surrounding the production, sale, and use of cannabis-based products, the cultural narrative on cannabis and its shifting role in contemporary society. And after this brief overview, we'll go into the cutting-age view because it's pretty interesting retrospective. It'll blow your minds perhaps more than ingesting the bun right now. So Dr. Piamelli, when he's offered his testimony, he refers back to the 3,000-year use of cannabis and marijuana. And I'm still going to I'm gonna find out what word choice we get to use. I'll, I'll be paying attention. In the early colonial U.S., life in 1619 Virginia assembly required every farmer to grow hemp it propped up the local economy and it could be exchanged as legal tender and then in 1920 Mexican immigrants introduced recreational marijuana to Americans following the Mexican Revolution enter the prejudice here against Mexican newcomers in 1937, the federal government first regulated marijuana, essentially outlawing it along with morphine and heroin. In 1952, the Boggs Act imposed ever stiffer mandatory sentences. Then Richard Nixon, as a way of disparaging counterculture, classified marijuana into a Schedule I. With gradual acceptance of the various uses of marijuana, 22 states in the Union have passed laws permitting its use, and we'll, talk, we'll take all of that up now. Well, first, gentlemen... What do you call this uh, subject of our program? What's the, what's the word you like to use, or does it always depend on the context? Thank you for asking that question, Claudia. That's a wonderful question to get started with. I don't use the word marijuana at all. I only use the word cannabis, and I like that word because it's a, an ancient, uh, an ancient uh, well, uh, very clear word that says what it says. Marijuana has it's a bad history, in my opinion. The word marijuana comes from what the American uh, reaction to the Mexican immigration was and has a lot of racist uh, uh, undertones that I'd rather not, not uh, use in my... Propagate there. Yes, exactly. So, and it's, it's more medicinal, yeah? Well, cannabis is neither medicinal nor recreational. The word cannabis means what it means. It's the plant as we use it. It's been used for la the last... 5,000 years, uh, and that's the right word to use. Okay. And, uh, Joe Dunn, do you have any sort of preference, or do you are you in a similar disposition? Uh, thanks, Claudia. I agree with uh, Dr. Piumelli completely on that issue uh, because uh, I only use the word cannabis. Uh, having served in the political arena, I know that the uh, connotations surrounding the word marijuana 
whether fair or unfair, it's the reality of politics that uh, cannabis is a more accepted term that doesn't carry the unfortunate baggage that the word uh, marijuana does. And when you're trying to change the law and evolve society through those changes of law, you have to be very careful, like it or not, in one's word choice and dealing with the getting folks previously very concerned about the marijuana issue are just by the change of uh, use of the word, all of a sudden you have different attitudes. Uh, so I always use the word cannabis. And so when both of you have been in a position to testify to colleagues, to legislators, in case your counterparts, researcher and political office holders, so you can practically see a difference in how they receive that. Maybe somebody on the, the panel that you're testifying before might throw in marijuana, but you, but you can you can see from the reception you're getting how everybody has a, a particular way of responding to the, the vocabulary. Precisely, words matter. And in fact, this was the first discussion we had, uh, the panel that was uh, uh, organized by the National Academy of Sciences to discuss um, and study the medicinal impact, uh, the public health impact of uh, cannabis was supposed to be the marijuana impact, the impact of marijuana on public health. And our first discussion was precisely on the use of the word. And my opinion that we should use cannabis eventually prevailed because everybody else, I think, was essentially already on the same page on this. Okay, well, like, and when we get to multicam, we'll f that, that may be one of the charters is, folks, it's all about how we're framing it and referring to it and expressing it. So well, that's great. Well, how about... The two of you, so we could say, so a, a, a pharmacologist and an attorney walk into a bar. <laughs> but how the, did the two of you, slow motion, find out that you had some common charter that you would collaborate in here? Dr. It's Pimelli? actually, yes. Uh, it was very interesting because it underlies how things happen sometimes by chance. Okay. But it also underlies the need to create an institute or center to study this topic in a multidisciplinary manner because literally we had joe and i have been in the same institution for a long time i've been at uc Irvine for over 20 years and we didn't really know of one another till i testified at the senate judiciary committee and that joe, was last year that was last july okay and joe learned about it and he came into my office and he said daniele i would like to create a center on Wow. multidisciplinary center on cannabis and I said wow that's what I wanted to do as well so that's how we got started so who was covered was it a c-span or was it some kind of direct link you have with <laughs> hearings I mean uh, I, I wish it was that, that uh, Claudia no it, it actually I was uh, given a heads up about Dr. Piamelli's testimony last year by uh, Kathy Eiler who is oh, okay. UCI's federal strategist and she has worked uh, closely uh, with Dr. Piamelli when he's testified in Congress and various other appearances so she had given me a heads up of his testimony and recognizing that from the law perspective this area of can the law surrounding cannabis is one of the most influx areas of the law in the U.S. today. And when you're a lawyer that really likes to take on challenges, it's rare, almost once in a generation, that you see a brand new area of the law develop through fits and starts and conflicts, of course. But, with high, uh, high stakes. With very high stakes. And I've always held the belief that the law needs to develop 
in partnership with the science on a given issue. Historically, the law develops in a vacuum and oftentimes becomes an obstacle to the development of science. And if the two evolve together and understand the two roles of science and law, um, I think the, the impact for society is much better. And it was that belief, after I heard of Dr. Piamelli's testimony and his long work in the cannabis research arena, uh, that I approached him uh, about this potential idea. Well, I'm anticipating where listeners are right now with us in this part of the program. I think it's very important that Dr. Piomelli lay out for us the benefits, the side effects of TCH versus CBD. That's the TCH is the endogenous cannabinoid and the CBD, the cannabidiol. Is that correct? Let me let me perhaps say a few words about that. So Please, lots of words. Cannabis, <laughs> not too many. Uh, cannabis has about a hundred active components in it, different chemicals. Uh, the most, the best known one is called tetrahydrocannabinol or THC. Um, others include cannabidiol or CBD, and. Most of the work done in the last 20, 25 years has been on THC. And the reason for that is because what you experience as a person when you take the cannabis plant, the flowers that contain THC uh, of the cannabis plant, that is essentially caused by THC. So CBD and the other 99 cannabinoid compounds that are present in the plant don't really give that sensation of elation, that euphoria, the pain-killing effect. They don't have those complex pharmacological actions. And the reason for that is because THC resembles a family of chemicals present in the body. They're present in the brain, but they're also present outside the brain in other organs and systems of the body. And these compounds are so-called endogenous cannabinoids, which means that they bind to and activate the very same protein, receptor protein, to which THC surreptitiously uh-huh. surreptitiously binds and activates. So THC hijacks something, chemicals, that our body normally makes. And our body normally makes such compounds to perform certain behaviors, to uh, underpin certain functions, physiological and behavioral functions, they're really very, very, very important. In fact, this is what has emerged over the last 20, 25 years of research in the endogenous cannabinoid system, which is often shortened to endocannabinoid system. What has emerged is how amazingly pervasive this system is in regulating all gamut of uh, physiological uh, functions from pain, to pleasure, to appetite, and so on and so forth. Sometimes unexpectedly so. So that's THC. But let's not forget that there is also other cannabinoids in cannabis. CBD is one of them. And there is a big hype about CBD these days because CBD is not an addictive substance. CBD is nothing. It's not really a psychoactive substance in the sense that it does not have the same uh, or even similar effects to those of THC. And so a lot of companies that are selling cannabis are producing strains of cannabis that contain a lot of CBD with the idea that somehow CBD is a cousin of THC that doesn't do the bad things that THC does but does only the good things that THC does. 
which is really not true. What's a better relative then? A step? Not a step. They're two different compounds. They're two different, different uncles? They're completely. They're completely different chemicals that do uh, different things. And, you know, when you combine them together in the plant, of course, you get a mixed of e- mixture of effects. Right. But they're very, very, very different. And we don't really understand deeply the effects of CBD yet because it has been understudied compared to THC. And again, let me re- let me restate this important point, I believe. There are at least another 99 compounds. That's what I'm hearing, in, right. In, in cannabis, which also might be playing a role. Is it more difficult to isolate either of these elements no. that's i mean they're equally accessible it's very very simple the thing is that you can grow cannabis that contains a lot of thc you can grow cannabis that contains a lot of cbd the other guys are in much smaller amounts very sometimes really tiny well that that is a great place to deepen here our understanding so the I, if you could then tell us then the attributes it's very clear there's still so much investigation necessary but you do have an inkling, and that's I know that's not a scientific word. I'm sure you loathe that that line, but there is a you have some understanding though of what the benefits are and and some of the side effects of both of these elements. Yeah, particularly for THC, we have a fairly good understanding now. The National Academy of Sciences created a committee uh, I was honored to be part of to uh, study this very topic, and we spent many months to go over 24,000 papers that have been published over the last 10 years since the last time the National Academy uh, Institute of Medicine had uh, summoned such a such a committee so there is a lot of work that has been that has been done and for a few points uh, we can uh, make some statements that are more than tentative one of them for example is the field of pain where we know now with reasonable certainty uh, that, uh, yes, indeed, cannabis and cannabinoids can be helpful, particularly in forms of chronic pain, neuropathic pain, such as those induced by accidents and or by the use of uh, chemotherapic, uh, chemotherapic agents, anti-cancer agents, or those that uh, are caused by HIV infection. Well, I guess one last part about this research is the reason you know I guess you've done cl- clinical trials that are properly set up, but I, are there, is there part of your research literature the more informal kind of data from people that have been using TCH recreationally for a long time? Is there, is, is there any contribution there since it's been used for so many years? Right. The, the body of data that we uh, have available to us, scientific data we have available to us, pretty substantial. It comes from uh, animal work that allows us to really ask mechanistic questions. When we do animal work, what we try and and do is to understand at a mechanistic level how a substance interacts with the body of of an animal, such as ourselves. So the animal data are pretty vast. There is a large amount of animal data, for example, on the analgesic effects of the pain-killing effects of the uh, cannabinoid uh, system. We also have a substantial amount of clinical data on this particular topic, but it is not sufficient yet. We still need much more. I mean, pain is a complex phenomenon. It's really a construct that is very heterogeneous. There are different types of pain. 
And uh, we need to understand very, very well, much better than what we do right now, how uh, cannabinoids can help and also how they can harm. Because right. let's make no mistake, any compound that is biologically active will do uh, both things, if even a very good drug, so to speak, has both side effects and benefits. So that is the body of data that we typically use. We don't use anecdotes. We no, typically don't use anecdotes because, as they say, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data. We do consider them. I mean, uh, let me, let me be clear. Absolutely. It's a hypothesis generating, and it's sometimes from a human standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, is really extremely important for us because you have to understand that the job of a scientist is actually, I mean, it's a great job, but it's also a, a little hard at times. You know, you got to write papers that don't get published. You got to write uh, grants that never get funded. And you wonder uh, day in and day out if all this is even worth the trouble, uh, given that, you know, the financial reward at the end is not amazingly, amazingly good. I mean, it's a nice job, but it's got a lot of frustration. When you see people out there that are, that give you the emotional reason to continue this job. The beneficiaries of any kind of intervention. Yes, even if it's not data yet, it's extremely, extremely important. I, I cherish the emails I get, uh, and I get a ton of them by patients. I cherish them even if they are sometimes heartbreaking because sometimes they are questions they have no answers but I do cherish them because they give me a reason to continue a job that is really can be really hard especially in a funding environment like the present one which is really difficult we're going to get to that we'll open that all the way up and in, in your recent talks also with the National Institutes of Health for those of you who've just joined us my guests are UCI neurobiology anatomy professor Dr. Daniele Piomelli and senator and UCI law school professor Joe Dunn formerly California State Senator. He's with, with the Office of the Dean at the Law School, involving an, in forming an inner school research institute whose mission will be to address the medical, legislative, and cultural challenges posed by the historic transformation of, of the research cannabis here in, in the U.S. Well, we can get into some of that institution, but there's I want to sort of roll into this some of the cultural sort of changes that have been going on when I gave my little... my checkered history here of how cultural attitudes have changed with some sort of xenophobic kind of tones, notes, as we say, uh, that I'd, I'd like for, for Joe Dunn to talk about the sort of cultural underpinnings of what has sort of led to the, the legal acceptance, of uh, the acceptance to legalize first the medicinal and then the recreational use of marijuana, which we have... I think I mentioned 22 states now have, in some form, passed laws that make it legal. Happy to uh, comment on it, Claudia. Um, and uh, for those who are uh, students of political science, it's yes. issues like this uh, that are really fascinating to study, to see how changes in uh, voters' attitudes are then reflected in laws that are passed by elected bodies, whether at a local level, state level, or the federal level. Um, I always, when I give speeches about the state of politics, I always say that political leadership is a bit of an oxymoron. Because if a political person is way ahead of the voters, uh, I'll show you a person who will only serve in office one term. 
Voters will only tolerate uh, their electeds being just a little bit farther out there on certain issues. And I share that, Claudia, because uh, the history of the changes in law relating to cannabis did not come from elected officials. They generally have come from the voters themselves. In those states that allow statewide ballot measures, California, of course, being one of those states, Colorado being another, um, those are the states where you have seen the voters demand that the laws change to begin to reflect the attitudes in society um, that were not the same attitudes a mere 25 years ago. They've changed. Um, we've seen a number of issues in society, whatever one's view is on the particular issue, all of a sudden break seemingly overnight. We saw the marriage equality issue that was a struggle for so many years all of a sudden, very short order, you saw attitudes change and the law change. And you're now seeing the same sort of phenomenon with uh, the laws surrounding cannabis. Does that mean that uh, all of the legal battles are over? Not by a, any chance in the world. Uh, we're only at the very beginning, in my view, of the evolution of the law and social policies surrounding uh, the, the topic of cannabis. And if I may, I want to share a confidential meeting. I don't mean that the meeting was confidential, but we had it behind closed doors with representatives of various voices in the overall cannabis topic from... Was it, it, it within the state or around the it, country? It, it, well, there were folks that were mostly from California, but okay. not exclusively. And we had a discussion with them about what do they see as the issues that need to be researched in an academic research setting? And, and clearly at the top of the list are many of the issues that Dr. Piumelli has, has talked about so often. The science, I, I don't want to speak for Dr. Piumelli, but I would guess it, it's in its overall evolution in a relatively early stage, simply mm -hmm. because of all the obstacles that have been thrown in the way of academic research in the area of the hard Because it takes time. a lot of money to underwrite research, and that means there has to be legal and political acceptance to support those grants to study it. Yes, in part. Um, but the most fascinating part of our discussion uh, with some of the major players, both in industry and in the political arena and et cetera, um, was their focus on non-scientific issues, uh, meaning social policy, the laws, of course, how the current state of the law has had disparate impacts on communities of color, for example, particularly the criminal laws associated with, uh, quote, marijuana. And it was fascinating to, to see their focus on these issues. And they were the ones who raised issues uh, with us about in the, the ever-increasing number of growing operations that are legal in some states now, the water and electricity demands for a growing operation and the impact on the overall energy picture of a given state. All of these issues were quite surprising to me. Uh, wow. but, but to see all of the very sophisticated players that are involved in evolving the law and the cultural attitudes, it, the discussion was extraordinarily sophisticated uh, and very far-reaching. And that tells you the, that society is clearly and rapidly embracing cannabis. Yes, it will take time in other parts of the country. Um, that's just the nature of things. It's not a criticism of anyone. And, but there are an amazing number of very sophisticated and smart folks starting to look at these very delicate issues. So given what you both have been involved with to date, I imagine you thought it was a pretty daunting exercise for California voters, as well as voters in other states, to vote yes 
to vote no on a proposition that was prepared by certain parties that it, it was with as you said so many there's so many aspects to it and it's the proposition is one sort of ent one body's kind of attempt to try to make a, a legal framework for the recreational uses of this in California so it must must have been dawning for you to watch the public decide yes or no on proposition 64 last year it was uh, it was interesting i wasn't i didn't feel daunted i just felt that uh, uh, it was about time and honestly i was not surprised when we heard that the proposition was uh, eventually voted I think what Senator Dunn was saying before is really very important because we need to understand that although scientists would like to think that science is the center of the world and uh, lawyers and jurisprudence uh, uh, scholars would like to think that law is the center of the world, in fact, neither of us uh, have that privileged position. It's the public that are making is making the decisions by changing slowly or fast their opinion about matters. And uh, it has been very, very clear over the last 10, 15 years that there's been a gradual but incessant change in the way the public sees the cannabis issue. And now all of a sudden, you know, the scientists and the jurisprudence scholars wake up and they, and they say, oh, wait a minute, we have to adjust ourselves to the questions and needs that the public has. Now, wow. it's not just because I think we were, honestly, I have to say, in our own defense, not because we were asleep, but because it really it's the federal government uh, that is sort of exerting that sort of hypnotic <laughs> hypnotic uh, function on us, hypnotic effect on us, because they really do not want this topic. They'd rather not discuss this topic. And we just can't not do it. We just have to do it. Because that's the best way, I think, to find out if there is any benefit, if there is any harm, if there is any way we can put this in laws that will benefit the most of the population and harm the least of the population. These are all things that require the federal government to take a little bit of leadership on this, which and, they haven't. And they haven't. And I think that was one of the most repeated lines of then-Senator Jeff Sessions when he was... From his 1986 testimony for being considered for a judgeship that all it was that the Ku Klux Klan were not that bad of a group until he found out they smoked dope so it and so now he is the sheriff in the country and so I'm um, leadership is still going to be hypnotic to use your word which is I think it's really excellent well if I can add, yes, add something sir. to that Claudia is and this is why I give great credit to the very sophisticated um, um, thinkers that are now involved in the overall cannabis topic. In all the disciplines. In all the disciplines, outside of an academic setting. Um, but each of them to a person from the political arena, the legal arena, uh, the scientific arena, the business, the finance, all the very complicated issues, um, to a person has said to us that we believe these questions need to be answered through independent academic research. That's an amazing statement to come from folks who are out there as, as entrepreneurs in this growing business because they're willing to accept that independent academic research even if the conclusions are not what they would like to see. They're turning from, it over. They're, they're willing to say, 
it is time that we truly have not industry-funded research, but pure, independent academic research from the hard sciences to the law to the business to the finance to the social policies. Um, and th that's quite a compliment to a relatively new industry. I completely agree, if I may yes, interject, because that's really a very fundamental point. Um, we all have to remember presidents, and one president is tobacco. And um, I am, as a scientist, always very concerned about, because I know that drugs do good things, but they also do bad things. And, and your research has been cessation of smoking. Yes, you know, yeah. I have, I have done, I have done work in that area. So, if you compare and contrast the cannabis industry, the budding, uh, excuse my pun, That's the pun okay. cannabis industry, and and the tobacco industry, um, again, I don't want to point any fingers, but there is there is such a clear difference between the secretiveness and 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 you know behind closed door attitude that tobacco big tobacco had and the way i think you know the cannabis in the evolving cannabis industry is trying to behave they have a strong faith i think in their product mm -hmm. um and uh which is i think very good but they also have faith in science and they uh, they believe that independent academic research independent science and academic research will be the will say the final word on this and that's very very important it means that there's civic and civil consciousness there the conscience that needs to be you know that we wouldn't want to encourage right uh, and that's i think one of the things if i may just maybe step ahead a little bit is one of the reasons why uh, senator dan and myself think this institute or center that we are trying to put together now is so important because the multi can right well that was actually kind of a, uh, a little that was your moniker that, that we had you know in in a proposal we which was actually uh, by the way funded mm -hmm. we heard last uh, yesterday oh congratulations 125,000 or I, more yeah 120,000 120 yeah. well that's a, it's good it's yeah. good it's good it's money good to it's good seed money to start off the uh, this this enterprise, which is exciting, also because we have partners, uh, stakeholders mm -hmm. in the uh, in the industry world and outside uh, that are willing to hear, willing to listen, and that's important. Okay, well, I actually I'm trying to get a sort of a a framework here, institutional framework, with Senator Dunn meeting in a privileged setting with a a group of people. I don't know if we could categorize them as a group and then we've got the national institutes of health that where the the current administration is looking at reducing the budget by 18 percent we're not there we're not haggling over the budget yet but a good sign is that francis collins has been retained as the leader of the national institutes of health correct that's a wonderful sign that's okay Th i cannot think of anybody who would be better than him at this job and he he knows dr piamelli knows where i'm going to go next you have had a couple of face at times with him in the last month and or month and a half. So is there anything about your meetings that he was able to weigh in with what your enterprise is here with the multidisciplinary research approach toward cannabis? Uh, not just to explain my uh, my last interaction with uh, uh, Dr. Collins was uh, at the at a meeting held in Bethesda on the opiate epidemics and Dr. Collins was attending uh, was presiding the meeting in fact and uh, so was Dr. Nora Volkov um, as well as Dr. Giant Woodcock who is the uh, 
head of the FDA. Dr. Volkov is the head of National Institute on Drug Abuse. And that's a lot of institutional knowledge. These have people been holding these. Dr. Volkov's been there for a, for since the early 2000s. That's right. Okay. That's right. Again, We're another wonderful of. leader. Uh-huh. Another wonderful. I had the opportunity with a few other people, well, maybe 20 people in the room, uh, wow. to um, to discuss the issue of opiate, uh, opiate, epi- the opiate epidemics. And I, I, I felt that I was out of place there because I'm not an opiate expert, but I think that one reason why I was invited is because um, somebody in the group, probably Dr. Volkov, maybe Dr. Collins, wanted to hear from somebody who knows a little bit about cannabis, how cannabis can play a role in the opiate epidemics, either positive or negative role. And, you know, there was my, um, hopefully my contribution to that meeting was that I brought up the experience of states that have laws on cannabis which have witnessed uh, changes in opiate consumption, a reduction in opiate consumption that can be uh, interpreted per- presently as being a, a positive, in a positive direction. When I bring that up, because that fascinated the heck out of me when you mentioned that in preparation for this interview. And so the question's always begging is, was, is there a causal relationship? Or that's why you want, need to do this research to find out why the, the presence of cannabis in a pharmaceutical array seems to maybe be pushing out the opiate addiction. It's a complex topic. And let me just state right off the bat that we need more work. But the papers that have come out, the studies that have come out are reputable studies and have been published in in very uh, reputable peer-reviewed scientific journals. One, the Journal of the Medical and Medical Association, the other, Health Affairs, and a few others in other um, scientific uh, journals. It's the beginning of a series of studies that we need to carry out to understand how uh, cannabis and opiate drugs interact. It's a very contentious and complex topic because it's scientifically complex and also is politically complex. But as I said, the first signs, what we see by reading the literature at this point in time, is that states where there is cannabis, there are cannabis laws, experience fewer overdose deaths. Actually, not, not. A lot fewer, 25% fewer, wow. 24.8% fewer, actually, overdose death, deaths than uh, states in which cannabis is not legalized. States where cannabis is legal for medicinal purposes also experience a much fewer number of prescriptions for opioid painkillers than uh, states in which it is, le- it is illegal. And by much fewer, I mean each individual physician prescribes almost... 10 fewer painkilling prescriptions a day oh in that states matters. where that's that's a lot each physician 10 fewer a day that's over 30 3000 per year fewer prescription in states where cannabis is legal than in those in which is illegal prescription for painkillers for opiate painkillers so these are there is no causation here, okay, Claudia. Let's be very, very clear. This is an association. These are association studies, and there might be more complex ev- uh, more p- mechanisms. There may be more complex mechanism at play here. Okay. But I have to base my judgment on the data that I see, and the data that I see right now uh, tallies with what we know about the endogenous cannabinoid system and endogenous opioid system. So let me say maybe a few, just yes. two words about this. 
so opioids and cannabinoids are in plants but are also in our body. We have an endogenous cannabinoid system, I said before, but we also have an endogenous opioid system. Okay, we have the encephalins, the endorphins, all those things that are, you know, a lot of our listeners will certainly know about. Right. Okay, so what do these systems do normally? Well, to simplify things a little bit, they really operate in the area of pain and pleasure. In a sense, they work to tune these two fundamental aspects of our lives, pain and pleasure. Pain is what uh, really makes us avoid potential harm, whereas pleasure makes us seek potential, potential, uh, potentially useful things. So uh, the endocannabinoid system operates in this, I- I- and the opioid system operate together okay. to regulate these things. So they, because they operate together, they're bound to interact, right? There is an interaction between these two systems at the very neurobiological level. So that interaction is something that we need to understand better because it holds the key to understanding how opiate drugs, opiate painkillers, and cannabinoids and cannabis interact. Okay, so the, those components that you also, in preparation, we're going to tack on one other medical concern, and then I want to see if we can get into some of the, um, the, the federal versus state kind of classifications that is such a large problem, the big elephant in the hearing room. But that for not so much the, the pain pleasure, but perhaps regulation, or maybe it is still pain, regulating anxieties. You're, you're talking about the incidence of attention deficit kinds of medication, that there's a can- cannabinoid piece to regulating that some ADD situations and people sort of easing off of some of that medication. The uh, ADD area is an area where I hear a lot of anecdotes, but oh. there are no, there are really no, work. there is really no data out there. You mentioned anxiety, and uh, anxiety, mood in general, uh, is one of the things that cannabinoids, endocannabinoids, regulate much more than the opioids. In fact, that's oh, okay. some. It's an area where the cannabinoids, endogenous cannabinoids, are much more important than the opioids are. So let's bring in Senator Dunn with the aspect of. Yes, 22 states have legalized the use of cannabis in various ways, but the, it's still illegal, and that there's there's certainly financial repercussions, but we're not going to go there. But I, I'd like to find out what prescriptive measures you're reviewing to reconcile those legal issues, and does that show up in, in the way in which marijuana would be classified in the year 2018-2019? Well, let me make some general comments, uh, but I think I'm going to defer to Dr. Pumeli on on the federal regulations and classifications okay. uh, of cannabis, which is one of the core problems at the federal level. The one comment I want to make from a general perspective, Claudia, is albeit this is a very frustrating place to be legally uh, for those who are advocates for the adult use uh, authorization of cannabis in, in virtually every state. The fact that some states have, in fact, embraced it to a degree, one degree or the other, but the federal government still is resistant. This is how the law develops. This is how politics develop. The push it, from it the state comes, level. Generally speaking, there are times it will come from top down, but most of the changes in attitudes in law and society have come at a local level, then a state level, and ultimately seemingly long overdue, uh, you'll see the federal government turn when there's just enough states 
to cause just enough elected folks in Congress to worry about their next reelection. Boom, the, the federal law will change at that point. As I say, it's not really a legal question. It's a political question. But that day is coming, and frankly, probably um, faster than I would have ever assumed that it's coming because you have so many driving interests. You've got inner-city communities in rural states that look for the potential tax revenue to do good things with that tax or build parks and improve neighborhoods, the kind of things that are done at a local government side. Plus, you have now the financial system that's looking at, the banking system. When venture capitalist funds are investing in the industry, you know things have changed dramatically because those are smart investors and they're not putting their uh, money into enterprises that are high risk. There's always risk, but it's very calculated risk. That tells you something that that things are changing. And if there's anybody in the political system today, Claudia, that believes we're going to stop where we are today and go backwards, it's not going to happen. That's just not how these issues develop politically. And there's so many examples of that in the history of the United States. But back to your very specific question, there are some core issues. Clearly, the issue of banking and where an entrepreneur that has a legal operation can deposit his or her revenue, um, all of those questions are very complicated, and it will take time to resolve as we wait until the political winds reach a majority at the federal level when everything will change very quickly. But I think I want to defer to Dr. Piamelli on the issue of classification of cannabis and how a change in that classification can just fundamentally alter in a positive way the ability to research, the ability for uh, the entrepreneurs, etc. Yeah, the scheduling of uh, cannabis goes back really to 1937, although it was codified in 1970 in the uh, Controlled Substance Act. And uh, it, it is based on the assumption that uh, cannabis is very dangerous. It's, uh, it's a high substance highly that can be highly abused and is of no medical use. That's why it's uh, is placed in the so-called schedule schedule one, along with methamphetamine, along with a few other really uh, highly dangerous substances. Now, I would like to me- clarify right away a possible misconception. This classification was not done based on an extensive scientific review of the literature. In fact, it was done against a scientific review of the literature because it was done in 1937 first, in 1970 afterwards, and without taking into consideration even the knowledge that was present at the time. It was very small knowledge, but there was knowledge. And in fact, some of that knowledge is uh, is important to rem- remember. For example, in the end, at the beginning of the, 19- of the 20th century, the British uh, uh, created a commission, the Indian Hemp Commission, the function of which was to study the problem of cannabis in India, which was at the time um, a British colony. And um, they did a very thorough investigation, very scientifically uh, solid uh, investigation. And that data is uh, several thousand pages that is available you know, in every library of the country. And you will find no indication in that study that the compound, that the cannabis, is as dangerous as the classification, 1937 classification, demanded. After 1937, LaGuardia, Fiorello LaGuardia, the the mayor of New York, York, he created a commission to study the problem in New York because 
was, was happening it, in the streets. It was happening in the streets, but it was uh, it, it wasn't that common, you know. But it was s- pr- problematic enough in the media at the time that he wanted to clarify, uh, clear the smoke, so to speak. And so he created a commission that's 1944, 1943-44, that eventually published a report. And that report was also just like the Indian Hemp Commission. Commission was also essentially ignored, not essentially completely ignored. So when in 1970 Nixon uh, wanted to create this, the, the, the CSA, did the same thing. He created a, a commission, but the commission said something that he did not want to hear. So it is very frustrating from a scientific perspective, but that's the, this is the way it has wow. been. It's a political, mm-hmm. uh, not, not a and legal a or scientific. Uh, yes, it's a, it's a cultural and political. And that's, I think it's an important point to remember. And yes. that's why I think the, this, this interdisciplinary uh, entity they would like to put together has culture as one of his pillars you know we have the department of humanities the school of humanities rather the department of film studies that has uh, endorsed our initiative and we are very very happy that they have because we think it's very very important to have that representation in the center and if i can just add yes. one thing to it uh, claudia uh, following up on dr piomelli's comments um, you can look at the strong voices in the political arena that have benefited from generating a negative view of cannabis uh, you look at, at the prison industry and and so forth um, when you have laws that criminalize based not on the scientific evidence but but on other agendas, you now have created a culture, a very negative culture that's been in existence for decades. This was one of the issues that the serious players that we brought together for a a, a behind closed doors discussion zeroed in on, is to look at how the um, kind of anti-cannabis attitude that's been pushed so strongly including still in many quarters of the federal government. Where did that come from? Why was it created when, as Dr. Piamelli just indicated, going way back a very long period of time, the science that was available didn't seem to support uh, the sorts of policy approaches that were being taken from elected bodies. Can I, I just want to interject. It's anecdotal, but I understand that from people that are involved in 12-step programs that were adamantly opposed to Prop 64. So there's another kind hmm. of a, a piece that is resisting what is uh, otherwise an inevitable kind of acceptance, more broadly speaking. But maybe it's there if there's more science that you can flip each of these kinds of sectors to understand that, no, folks, this is really, there. there's benefits that are are much more nuanced and subtle and con- you know important to be considered so that the 12-step kind of abstinence of consuming various uh, substances, it, that there is acceptance of that eventually. Well, there are benefits and there are risks. And I think it's yes. very, very important we remind ourselves of that. So th- really what we need is to is really expand our knowledge on this. We, we do not, be, for the reasons that have been so clearly stated before, we don't have enough understanding. We have some hints uh, of certainly of benefits that are uh, important and should be listened to, but we also need to make sure to uh, understand also the risks involved. Those are just as important, and that's what really academic scientific research is all about. We don't go in with uh, 
uh, we have a scientific hypothesis, not uh, an ethical or political or social mm-hmm. hypothesis. And I just add uh, kudos to those who drafted Prop 64. You do, yes. Uh, they recognize the need for uh, significant research dollars that, unfortunately, were not coming as easily at the federal level. We're allocating $10 million. $10 million a no year baby, yes. for 10 years uh, to California-based public universities. Uh, there's only a handful of the public universities here in California that have the expertise, for example, Dr. Piamelli being a a prime example of that. Um, But the list of issues that were contained in Proposition 64 for uh, research um, obviously uh, zeroes in on the hard sciences, but also touches upon all these other issues that we've referenced on the show today, uh, Claudia. And I give great credit to the drafters of Proposition 64 that it wasn't simply a let's take advantage of the voters changing attitude and get it adult use legalized and be done with it. No, attached to it was a very, very important issue, and that is, but let's evolve the policy and the laws based upon scientific research, and thus the research dollars were contained in Prop 64. I so regret that there, we're running way down on our time, but I want to give you a chance to say what your, it's not a pipe dream, what your proposal is. You're at the juncture of creating this multidisciplinary, multi-can is a, is a name for the Institute, but I'd like for you to tell us the disciplines that you're bringing in together and any collaboration with other, was it UC San Diego and other nearby universities that will be involved in pursuing this much, much needed research. And we've got like less than two minutes. Yeah, in less than two minutes. I know, that's really... It's absolutely important to remind the listeners that we do need to study cannabis 360 degrees. We can't just look at the medical aspect or the legal aspect in separation. We need to bring those together. We have to bring in the cultural component. We need to bring in the public health component, the engineering Economics, uh, and, and economics, the financial, and environmental, and and business component. These are all fundamental things that have. They all come together in this institute. I agree with Dr. Piamelli, Claudia, and in our discussions over the past year, whether from the level of deans or very accomplished researchers in the various schools, from law to business to engineering to computer sciences to nursing, and the list goes on. That have expressed a very, very strong interest uh, of being involved in the inter. Disciplinary uh, Institute, which tells you society is ready for that interdisciplinary approach to this emerging issue. It's the only way we're going to move forward on a rational basis. And in the, the very half-minute kind of situation here, what do listeners need to do to make this happen? What's what's their role? Stay tuned for now. Stay tuned. <laughs> okay. So they, the, but the understanding the the nuances and the complexities and the 360 degrees that's the takeaway for everybody and then support uh, as this institution is being built brick by brick uh, And if I can add one thing, uh, um, and that is stay tuned because part of the uh, mission for the Institute is, of course, uh, academic conferences and symposium that will occur right here at UCI um, that through the great work of Dr. Piamelli will bring some of the world's uh, top experts in all these areas. And that's something that all of our students on campus, I'm sure, would be welcome to attend. Well, I want to thank both of you for the heft and the range that you're you've brought to the show that's all the time we have thank you gentlemen for making the, this time for us to lead us around the moment on the the transformative law making and clinical research with regard to legalized medicinal use and recreational use of marijuana that was professor of neurobiology and anatomy 
Danielle Piomelli and Senator Joe Dunn at the law school here at UCI. Thank you both for coming down to the studio with us Thank today. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. That is a wrap. Next week we'll hear from Bill Allenbach with his new book entitled Cramming for the Finals, New Ways of Looking at Old Church Ideas. That's an opportune time to talk with also Jose Hernandez with the Orange County Communities Organized for Responsible Development in advance of the next Citizen Fair, which I recommend everybody pitch in and help out with. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you.